welcome to the Center for Investment Excellence, a production of J.P. Morgan Asset Management. The Center for Investment Excellence is an audio podcast that provides educational insights across asset classes and investment themes. Welcome, everyone. Thank you very much for making the time to join us today. My name is Matt Johnson, and I'm a client advisor at J.P. Morgan Asset Management. I'm pleased to be joined by two of my colleagues, Ashmeen Marotra and Steve Catherwood, who are the co-heads of our Global Private Equity Group. Ashley and Steve, thank you for joining us. Great. Thanks, Matt, for your kind introduction, and thanks to all of you for joining us today. Stephen and I are very excited to share our perspective on the private equity markets, as well as give you a little flavor for the areas where we're currently focused on. I thought I'd start with a little bit of my background. I started with J.P. Morgan over 21 years ago now and started off in the private banking division and then have been with the private equity business as part of J.P. Morgan Asset Management for the last 17 years, where my primary responsibilities have been on the investment side as a portfolio manager, leading and monitoring investments across our partnership investments, secondaries, and direct co-investments. Also work extensively with our clients, many of you on the call today, across existing portfolios, as well as across our business development efforts. Most of my focus has been mainly in the U.S., and I also had some experience in Asia. Also thought it was important to give you some perspective on our platform and our team. We currently manage about $24 billion in private equity assets on behalf of our clients. We invest in every stage of a private company's life cycle, so from the beginning, early stage, VC, growth, buyout stage, and then distress situations as well. And uh, important to note, we are aligned alongside our investors. We personally invest our own capital in every deal that we do on behalf of our clients. We have a global team of 60 people, 47 of which are investment professionals. And we are lucky to have a lot of tenure and continuity within our team. Just to give you a couple of data points, our senior portfolio management team has an average tenure in private equity of 21 years in the business and 16 years average tenure in PE across our entire portfolio management team. This means that we have seen and invested through many cycles, and that informs our strategy and our focus going forward. Let me stop there and hand it over to Stephen to provide his background as well. Thank you, Ashmi, and good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for taking the time to join us. As mentioned, I'm Steve Catherwood. I've been with the firm for 19 years, the past 17 of which have been in the private equity group, been based in New York that whole time, focused on making investments across all aspects of our business in terms of funds, secondaries, co-invests, and directs, predominantly here in the U.S., but also on some investments outside of the U.S., predominantly in Europe and Asia. And just one other point wanted to cover as it relates to our team and how we're organized. And I think some of this will come through as we talk about how we're seeing and thinking about the market in today's environment is we're all organized really by relationship. Most of the capital that we deploy, be it in fund investments, secondaries or co-investments are done through relationships that we have with partners in the market. And we organize around those relationships so that the folks that are covering them can partner with those general partners across opportunities in each of the three buckets. And what that really allows us to do is be very nimble and tactical in how we allocate our time to the extent that we see one of the three buckets offering opportunities with better risk return characteristics. You know, we can shift and focus a lot of resources to those versus bucketing individuals by investment type. 
And so that's something that I think will come across as we talk through what we're seeing and wanted to just provide that as a reminder up front. So with that said, we'll turn it back over to Matt to run through some questions. Excellent. Thank you both for setting the stage. For structure of today's call, we're going to spend about 30 minutes discussing the current state of the private equity market, which is facing new obstacles and seeing new opportunities as a result of COVID-19. Let's get started. The first question I have for you both will come as no surprise. We have to talk about COVID-19. When the virus first surfaced as a global health and economic threat earlier this year, we saw an immediate disruption in public equity markets, and it's been a wild ride ever since. Now that private equity data has become available, what sort of disruptions are you monitoring following the onset of COVID-19? Sure, so I'll kick that off. It's obviously been, as you said, a very wild ride and one that has presented numerous challenges and it's certainly unique in terms of the, the speed and the depth of the challenges that it presented. From our perspective, the immediate thing we wanted to spend time on and focus was our existing portfolio and assessing the resilience and strength of our assets given the specific challenges that COVID presented. And so the first thing you want to do is make sure that the businesses you're invested in have sufficient cash and runway to withstand the crisis to the extent that they are seeing significant negative implications. And so really, we scored everything that we're invested in across some qualitative and quantitative criteria, including cash balance, availability of lines of credit or revolvers, overall runway, also looking at items in terms of the depth of the operational impact, business disruption, impact on near-term KPIs, and then really digging deep in situations where the debt covenants could potentially be an issue and to the extent that they were, analyzing and getting the strength of the lender relationships and getting ahead of any situations there where that could pose a particular challenge. There are some cases where some additional equity capital was needed to be provided to support companies that were largely consumer-facing or retail-facing And in some of those situations, thankfully, we were part of strong equity syndicates in those businesses that could provide the support necessary. But broadly speaking, as we looked at our portfolio, there's no place to hide. Every sector and most businesses were impacted in some particular way. Broadly speaking, the portfolio has proven to be relatively resilient. And we touch wood because this is a very dynamic dislocation and situation that we're managing through. But to date, either because the businesses are in more resilient end markets or had strong balance sheets and cash balances to manage through it, I'd say as we look at our own portfolio, the impact to date has been a little bit more measured than I think we would have initially expected. And we're now starting to get early indications on 2Q valuations which if you had asked us at the start of the quarter which way they would trend, the overwhelming consensus was that there would be a lot more negative pressure on valuations. And we're starting to see a number of our partners and a number of our underlying investments actually start to point to potentially increases in valuation. So we'll see that data is obviously still coming in, but would say overall, there are a number of things that we continue to monitor Some sectors are hit much harder than others, and we'll talk a little bit more about some specific sectors later in the call. But on balance, the focus is making sure we had that resilience and that runway. And in many cases, within our portfolio, that has been the case. And as we look across the landscape, broadly speaking, we'd say GPs had largely done a good job of not necessarily preparing for this specific event, but building strong balance sheets for their businesses to create some resilience. 
I think what we can also point to on the flip side is talking about a little bit of what opportunities are we seeing in this market as well. And I'd like to highlight one that we're currently, actually, we just closed on. And this opportunity really came about because of the current COVID environment. We are an existing investor in a firm called Atlantic Street Capital, based in Connecticut and Florida, where we have been a leading investor since 2011. They were an emerging manager when we first backed them way back when and are a pretty significant investor with them currently across all their funds and, again, with their Fund 4, which they just raised last year. This investment opportunity is in a company called United Veterinarian Care, UVC, and it's a consolidator in the veterinarian hospital space where Atlantic Street 3, the prior fund, had an investment already. And it's really kind of a buy and build putting together all of these veterinary hospitals as a leading consolidator. Atlantic Street 3, because of the issues around COVID and the exit environment being so difficult, they had a couple of deals in the market looking to be sold, and they were going to recycle that capital from those distributions and put more capital behind UBC as they continued to consolidate this platform. But what happened was, given the environment, those two exits were put on hold as of March, really end of March, early April, and so there was this capital need to continue to execute with UBC. And so they came to their existing investors, including ourselves, to see if there was any interest from the existing investors to do a co-investment alongside Atlantic Street 3 in this existing portfolio company. Now, a couple of things were in our favor as well. Obviously, we know Atlantic Street very well, one of their largest investors. We also know the investment very well because we're an existing investor indirectly in UBC. We also got very comfortable with the team. We knew the team already because of an existing investment. So it's not like we have to do, you know, Zoom due diligence over a compressed period of time where we don't know these people. We knew the team, we knew the asset, and we were comfortable with the thesis around this investment, which basically is, look, it's a large growing and recession resilient industry, right? Driven by a number of tailwinds, increased pet ownership, pets living longer, pet insurance becoming more readily available, et cetera. This is one of the leading teams in the veterinary and hospital consolidation space. And we felt that there was a good risk reward in terms of getting this opportunity, which wouldn't have basically been there if it wasn't for these exits not happening, as well as a lot more growth within this consolidation play that they're doing at UBC. So we just closed on this investment last week. We were able to come in as the lead co-investor alongside Atlantic Street and a couple other co-investors that came in alongside us. But again, just to highlight an example of a situation that occurred really only given the existing environment, but really kind of an advantageous situation. Awesome. Thank you for that setting the stage. Now to take just a step backwards a little bit to get a broader view. The global financial crisis is the most severe drawdown we've had recently. Though the catalysts were different, a lot of institutions are comparing the COVID drawdown to what we experienced during the GSC. So I'll ask you both, what's different this time around? Yeah, it's a great question. It's one we get a lot and would say there is, I think, some very stark differences between what we experienced in private equity during the GFC and this. And one major difference is the speed of the onset. So if you look back at the great financial crisis, was really a crisis that in a lot of ways originated on Wall Street and then spread from there, you know, there was still some time. There was time as that crisis unfolded for people that wanted to take action within their business, whether it was adjust their cost structure whether it was try to reconfigure their balance sheet, 
there was a matter of weeks and months between when some of the key events happened that sparked that crisis and when a lot of that stress was then manifesting itself in company earnings. This crisis is very different. There was a very short period of time between the onset of COVID and when non-essential businesses that needed to be shut down were shut down. I think one of the stats that sort of best captures the speed is one that was presented in a J.P. Morgan presentation a few months ago that noted there were only 17 trading days between the all-time high of the S&P 500 and when the government had to step in and launch some of their stimulative measures, including things that Severe is backing up money market funds. So that speaks to how quickly this occurred. So there was no time for private equity firms or underlying company management teams to really take major action to prepare for the challenges ahead. And so a lot of the lenders that partner with these businesses to provide capital and support them, once the crisis unfolded, they were bombarded with requests to either amend agreements or try to get access to additional capital, and they couldn't process them fast enough. So the businesses that faced stress and challenges faced them extremely quickly. And that was something that is very unique. And while the government moved very quickly to put in support measures that were very beneficial to the public market, some of the programs that were launched to benefit businesses in the private sector were designed to either exclude private equity or make it much more challenging for private equity-backed companies to access it. So there's a little bit of a bifurcation between what you see in the public markets and what you saw in the private markets. The flip side to all that when you compare the current state of the market going into this crisis versus the GFC is a lot of the covenant light loans and debt structures that had very loose terms associated with it, which were things that really came about leading up to the great financial crisis, but were largely focused towards the very large end of the spectrum from a deal perspective. Some of those more attractive terms had moved down market and became more achievable for businesses that were much smaller than you saw in the great financial crisis. So the benefit going into this is even though this is a dislocation and a challenge that came up rather quickly, generally speaking, we see a much larger percentage of portfolios at smaller ends of the market that were benefiting from those structures and that flexibility. The other thing that I'd say that's quite relevant for our strategy and our business is during the great financial crisis, there were a large number of distressed sellers of secondary interests in private equity assets. And that was driven by the fact that there were a large number of investors that were given that the public markets contracted so quickly and some products that investors had put capital into, they thought would have better liquidity than they actually did once the crisis arose. That forced a lot of people to unload assets at very attractive prices. In this situation, what we've seen that is very different is once the dislocation presented itself, in part because of the fact that public equity markets responded so quickly, in part because I think a lot of investors had learned their lessons from the last downturn and were more focused on ensuring that they were in strategies that had better liquidity, we have not seen a wave of distressed selling on that front. It's not uncommon after dislocation occurs for there to be some time before those secondary trades happen, and we're still arguably in that period. And there's a consensus in the market that secondary activity will start to pick up very soon now that there's going to be more visibility into second quarter marks, which a lot of investors wanted to come out prior to engaging in secondary sales. However, we've heard from a number of investors that you would typically see pause investment activity in private equity 
during these types of dislocations say that for their own portfolios, they've learned the lesson from the great financial crisis when they took a step back from deploying capital and want to be more aggressive to capture opportunities that pop up during this dislocation, this crisis. So we do think that the activity in the secondary market will start to resume. However, it is unclear what the competitive and the pricing dynamics will be around those. So in the great financial crisis, we saw a number of opportunities that we were able to execute on where we were buying in at 40, 50, 60 cents on the dollar and think that barring a significant second wave or greater pressure in the public markets that the pricing is likely to be more moderate going forward, but very difficult to predict given everything going on in the world. Thank you. I appreciate the comments on COVID-19. A lot of clients are asking about given it's encompassing all the headlines, but that's certainly not the only risk in the market. What risks should private equity investors be considering right now that are not necessarily COVID-19 driven? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. We all know there has been a lot of demand for private equity as investors continue to seek alpha in a prolonged low interest rate environment. That has certainly caused a proliferation of private equity funds in the market, as well as record dry powder overall for the industry. I think I saw a stat from PitchBook that estimates that there is over $1.2 trillion of dry powder that has been raised. So this is committed capital that's waiting to be invested into private equity transactions. So what does that mean? That has caused heightened competition for investments, leading to even greater, in some cases, peak valuations across many investments and very high amounts of leverage as well. Similar to what we saw, by the way, prior to the great financial crisis, you know, many companies being levered at six, seven, eight times ratios. And so I think the credit markets have been very accommodating during this cycle and have led to general partners and managers putting a lot of leverage on their underlying businesses. And there are clear risks, of course, to this, right? In case there's a major credit market dislocation, there will likely be a lot of restructuring that will need to occur for several of these businesses. Now, much of the private equity debt, it should be noted, has been raised at attractive terms, you know, covenant light, et cetera. And so this may not be as bad of a shakeout if there is a correction, but certainly many of these businesses have a lot of leverage on them. And so that is a risk. Just to also give you a little perspective on what is our focus, our focus has always been on the small to middle market. And yes, how do you actually define small middle market? That definition is probably increasing, if you will, where small middle market now, as we define it, is at the large end, kind of under $2 billion on the middle market side. But we're not investing in over-levered companies by and large. As an example, just as a reference point across our U.S. buyout investments, they're levered anywhere between three and four times. So certainly not the six, seven, eight times that we're seeing, which is more commonplace in the market. And we're investing in, by and large, smaller businesses, right, where there is still fundamentally an opportunity to improve those companies through operational change and not through financial engineering. And so a couple of them I'd like to highlight. One is a company called Fast Growing Trees, which is a co-investment we made about two years ago. It's a simple business to understand, but complex to execute, which is a barrier to entry. So what they do is, on their websites, fastgrowingtrees.com and brighterblooms.com, they sell direct-to-consumer plants, shrubs, trees, et cetera. And it usually arrives at your door, at your home, within two to three days. And it's complex to ship and everything like that. So I think it is a barrier to entry in terms of, what well, is Amazon going to get into this business, et cetera. But more so, it gives you a little bit of perspective on the small end of the market because there is an opportunity to fundamentally enhance this business. So what have we done? 
We've made team improvements across the whole management suite where we've added the CEO, CFO, COO, head of merchandising, and digital marketing folks as well. And we've also made operational improvements, including how we procure products from our suppliers, how we grow product at our farm in South Carolina, and where we are in the process of upgrading our warehouse, shipping lanes in order to prepare for continued growth. So a real opportunity to actually make change and professionalize this business. This business is expected to do 2x the sales and profitability they did last year. So certainly has benefited from the recent work from home environment. And we're looking to capitalize that growth and sustain it into the future. I would like to put a little plug for all of you. If you guys are at home looking to buy trees or to beautify your backyards, please go to fastgrowingtrees.com. But again, I highlight that just as an example of, you know, we're not focused on these really, really highly levered businesses, but Fast Growing Trees is levered less than three and a half times at this point. And it's just, there's a real advantage and a real way to affect change in these businesses. All right. So let me stop there and we can move on to the next topic. Thanks, Ashley. Those are some great examples, and I'd like to expand upon those investment opportunities we discussed. And Steve, you mentioned secondaries a bit earlier, but as co-heads of the private equity group, you both allocate across, as you mentioned, general partnerships, direct investments, and secondaries. And I'd like to dive a bit deeper into each of those segments. What opportunities or obstacles are you seeing in each of these segments? Sure. So we can go through each one because they each have their own characteristics. And ultimately, our strategy is very opportunistic in the sense that we are looking at opportunities that come in any of the three buckets individually. And so there are no generalizations that speak to any particular bucket. But what we'd say at a high level is, first, if you look at fund investments, one of the things that we had started to see even pre-COVID that had been a theme was a little bit of a divide between sort of the haves and have-nots of fund managers. Those that had strong performance were generally increasing their fund size. They were getting larger demand from their existing investor base. And so what you started to see was that investors were talking about how their calendar, if you will, of investment activity was really being dominated by re-ups or investments into the new fund being raised by a fund manager that you are already invested in. And that newer manager is trying to get capital and fight for slots on investors' dance cards was getting harder because so much capital was being absorbed by these existing relationships that investors had with various general partners. The market today, post-COVID, is different, but in some ways that trend is continuing for slightly different reasons in the sense that given that it is harder to do on-site diligence, as well as some investors not being as aggressive in deploying capital, given the environment we're in, that has played even more into the hands of managers that have existing relationships with investors. And so what we see is those managers that have good track records, that have good investor bases, they are still coming back to market. There was a period after COVID had initially set in that really fundraising activity stopped, but about six, eight weeks afterwards, some of these fund managers started to get in conversations with their investors a sense that there was enough demand there that they could launch fundraises. And so what we see now is those quote-unquote haves that have good performance and have relationships, they are coming back to market now to raise new funds, and they are doing it very successfully. The managers that were really focused that had slightly tougher fundraises ahead of them where they needed to build out new relationships in order to complete that fundraising they have either delayed those fundraisers if they hadn't already started them or folks that had launched their fundraising process and were going through that process and then COVID hit 
they are generally extending the timelines associated with those because it is much harder for them to get those funds raised in this market. The challenges that we face there is that there continues to be strong demand for some of these very experienced managers, and that still gives them a lot of flexibility to increase fund size if they want to and also push the terms and conditions of their documents to more GP-favorable terms in some situations. Not all GPs are doing that. We are very focused on fund size and making sure we're back in teams that can deploy appropriate amounts of capital. And every year, there's some subset of our portfolio that is pushing fund size too hard that we have to step back from. But I would say that's the dynamic in the fund investment category. In secondaries, that has been obviously a market that has continued to increase in terms of size and visibility within the private equity segment over the past decade. And there's a lot of dry powder in the space. There's a lot of interest. Investors are looking at secondaries saying, This is an area where I can get capital to work quickly and mitigate the J-curve, can shorten the duration of the overall investment. And what we have seen there is the proliferation of secondary funds and a lot of those funds raising larger pools of capital themselves. It has made that market very expensive and very competitive. And so we've seen a lot of cases where those larger funds are not only pricing those deals at high levels relative to historical averages, but they're pricing those at high levels relative to current NAV, which is driven off of high levels of earnings. And more often, they're using leverage at their transaction level. So you have leverage upon leverage. And so for us, since we are trying to underwrite to unlevered returns that are comparable to what we can achieve either in the fund investment or direct investment segment, we've continued to be very disciplined around how we approach that market and are very willing to be opportunistic and move in and out of it. So, for example, last year was arguably the most competitive year that we've ever seen in the secondary market. We put out in secondaries a single-digit million number in one transaction. So, really, we're not pushing hard in that area. That said, we continue to find relationship-based transactions in that segment of the market. So, if you go back to 2018, for example, one of the largest transactions we did was a stapled secondary with a group called Napier Park Financial Partners. We were already an existing investor in this fund. There was an opportunity that came up to buy an interest from a very large participant in that fund. There was a very tight time frame. That interest was being sold as part of a broader process. We were able to use our relationship advantage with the GP and our knowledge of the portfolio to put forth an offer to carve that interest out from that broader competitive process. And then ultimately, because we knew the portfolio well, even though it was a relatively concentrated portfolio where the majority of net asset value was in two deals, we were able to underwrite it very quickly and execute the transaction. And less than two and a half years later, due to the conviction we had, especially in one of those businesses that went public last year called Bill.com and has been trading very well, a little less than two and a half years later, we're at just under a 3x multiple on that transaction. So we continue to be opportunistic. We use our relationships there to create an advantage. But the pricing dynamic for the broad market of secondaries has been such where we found more attractive opportunities either on the fund side or the co-investment slash direct side. And then the last bucket of the three is those direct investments. I should be mentioned the UVC example. We continue to be active and have done a number of co-investments recently It's an area that we think has a number of attractive characteristics. If you can find good opportunities and partner with good management teams and GPs. And so that is very much opportunistic. It's very much deal and transaction specific, but the flow there continues to be very active. And that's an area where relative to historic pace in 2020 so far, we're ahead and think that will continue through the remainder of the year. 
Thank you. These are trying times for us all, personally and professionally. Steve, Ashmi, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time out of your schedule to join us today. And we truly appreciate your continued engagement partnership. Thank you all for joining. For institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, not for retail use or distribution, not for retail distribution, this communication has been prepared exclusively for institutional wholesale professional clients and qualified investors only, as defined by local laws and regulations. The views contained herein are not to be taken as advice or a recommendation to buy or sell any investment in any jurisdiction, nor is it a commitment from JP, Morgan Asset Management or any of its subsidiaries to participate in any of the transactions mentioned herein. Any forecasts, figures, opinions or investment techniques and strategies set out are for information purposes only based on certain assumptions and current market conditions and are subject to change without prior notice. All information presented herein is considered to be accurate at the time of production. This material does not contain sufficient information to support an investment decision and it should not be relied upon by you in evaluating the merits of investing in any securities or products. In addition, users should make an independent assessment of the legal, regulatory, tax, credit and accounting implications and determine, together with their own professional advisors, if any investment mentioned herein is believed to be suitable to their personal goals. Investors should ensure that they obtain all available relevant information before making any investment. It should be noted that investment involves risks. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate in accordance with market conditions and taxation agreements and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Both past performance and yields are not reliable indicators of current and future results. JP Morgan Asset Management is the brand for the asset management business of JP Morgan Chase and Company and its affiliates worldwide. To the extent permitted by applicable law, we may record telephone calls and monitor electronic communications to comply with our legal and regulatory obligations and internal policies. Personal data will be collected, stored and processed by JP Morgan Asset Management in accordance with our privacy policies at https://am.jpmorgan.com slash global, slash privacy. This communication is issued by the following entities, in the United States, by JP, Morgan Investment Management Inc. or JP, Morgan Alternative Asset Management, Inc., both regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission, in Latin America, for intended recipients use only, by local JP, Morgan entities, as the case may be, in Canada, for institutional clients use only, by JP Morgan Asset Management, Canada Inc., which is a registered portfolio manager and exempt market dealer in all Canadian provinces and territories except the Yukon and is also registered as an investment fund manager in British Columbia, Ontario, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador, in the United Kingdom, by JP Morgan Asset Management, UK, Limited, which is authorized and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority, in other European jurisdictions, by JP Morgan Asset Management Europe S, A Grave RL, in Asia Pacific, APAC, by the following issuing entities and in the respective jurisdictions in which they are primarily regulated, JP Morgan Asset Management, Asia Pacific, Limited, or JP Morgan Funds, Asia, Limited, or JP Morgan Asset Management Real Assets, Asia, Limited, each of which is regulated by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong, JP Morgan Asset Management, Singapore, Limited, Company, Reg, Number 197,601,586K, which this advertisement or publication has not been reviewed by the Monetary Authority of Singapore, JP Morgan Asset Management, Taiwan, Limited, JP Morgan Asset Management, Japan, Limited, 
which is a member of the Investment Trusts Association, Japan, the Japan Investment Advisors Association, Type 2 Financial Instruments Firms Association and the Japan Securities Dealers Association and is regulated by the Financial Services Agency, Registration Number Kanto Local Finance Bureau, Financial Instruments Firm, Number 330, in Australia, to wholesale clients only as defined in Section 761A and 761G of the Corporations Act 2001, Commonwealth, by J.P. Morgan Asset Management, Australia, Limited, ABN 55143832080, AFSL 376919, Copyright 2020 J.P. Morgan Chase & Company All Rights Reserved.